Well, let's begin with prayer, shall we? Lord, thank you for bringing us together again on this um, rainy Sunday morning, and you have shined again on our hearts. Thank you for the good word that we heard today about your gospel and your love for us and that you're for us, and I pray that that will sink deeply into our hearts, into our lives, to believe, Lord, that that's true and that it's true for us. And we ask these things in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Come on in. <clears throat> so we're in Colossians, and if you remember last week, we made this executive decision to ch- change the series title to just Colossians 1. Uh, so today I want to press through on the Colossians, on the hymn in Colossians. And if, and if you heard two children hacking away through church, coughing, I'd like to apologize. Those were mine. Um, my wife is on her way to Greenville, so it's a, it's a boys' weekend today now, which is really bad news. I mean, I realize I, I, um, you know, I, I'm, I'm in need of a wife. Uh, so I had the kids there today shoving cough drops down Jackson's throat. But, um, well, anyway. So Colossians 1. Um let me read the text to you, and then we'll just we'll talk about it. And I'd like to save some time too. From well, I take that back. There won't be any time for questions. <laughs> so let's just get into Colossians one. Uh, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For in him all things in heaven and on earth were created, things visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or powers. All things have been created through him and for him. He himself is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn. Now, that's the second time we've heard that term, the firstborn from the dead, so that he might come to have first place in everything. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him God was pleased to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, by making peace through the blood of his cross. And I want to read these next few verses to you. And you who were once estranged and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, that's us, he is now reconciled in his fleshly body through death, so as to present you holy and blameless before him, so that you continue securely, established and steadfast in the faith, without shifting from the hope promised by the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed to every creature under heaven, I, Paul, became a servant of this gospel. Now, I want to talk a little bit before I hop into, again, at least expounding on some level this text, and reflect with you a little bit about the nature of the Trinity. And Trinitarian... Don't leave, right? Um, The Trinity and the nature of Trinitarian doctrine as it applies to the study of the Bible. Um, so, you heard it in this last hymn. I just love the hymns today. were just outstanding. You heard this in the last hymn, right? Did you go through all of these five verses of this hymn, talking about the work of God and His Son, and then by the Spirit, and then the final, the final verse is, and we praise you, Holy Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Which reminds me, I looked at just sort of in our hymnal, that's a, a Latin text from the 15th century. You know, if there was a doctrine in the life of the church, and I've mentioned this in other contexts, but I'll say it again because of what we're about to hop into, but if there was a doctrine in the life of the church that 
provides for us the fundamental Christian language by which we speak, by which we even begin to articulate who we are and what we believe. In the early church, there was no question about what that doctrine was. It was the Trinity. And it's not the Trinity among other doctrines. It's the Trinity that gives scope and shape to every other doctrine that we believe. I believe in God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Three persons, one God. And I have, I have my children, I'm sure you have people ask you all the time about the logic of that. And the answer to that is, it's not a logic that functions according to our own thinking. It's a logic that functions according to the revelation of God in His Word and in His Son. Why is this important? It's important because the, the doctrine of the Trinity, or the word Trinity... How many of you are Strong's Concordance people, at least at some point in your life, right? Yanked the Strong's Concordance off to do a little Bible study. I mean, if you did a search through Strong's Concordance and looked for the word Trinity, it's not there, right? And, and I was raised in a world, and I'm sure some of you as well, and I still think this is a good question. It's the right question. Whenever someone raises a thing about what they believe or some kind of ethical principle in the Christian life, the immediate question should be, well, where do we find that in Scripture? Or, how do we reason toward that end on the basis of Scripture? That's really, I believe, how the church throughout its whole history, with all of the diversity that you find in the church, and there's a lot of diversity. So I'm talking about a really big river here. But in that big river of the Christian interpretive tradition and theological tradition, one could say that all of the debates that you might think are picayunish and detailed, I mean, in other words, kind of esoteric, not really all that practical, but all of these doctrines that you and these debates that you see through the history of the church, like, is Jesus fully God and fully man at the same time, and how does that work? The doctrine of Chalcedon. You move on into the Reformation period, and you have this debate. Is the body and blood of Jesus locally present in, the, in the, the bread and the wine itself? Or does the bread and the wine become a mediator of... Some, in other words, these Eucharistic debates were hot and heavy. And the truth of the matter is, as strange and detailed and scholastic as some of these doctrines might seem to us, they were all being waged on the battlefield of the Bible. That's, that's what I really want to sort of put forward to you. They were all waged on the battlefield of the Bible. So that one could say the history of Christian doctrine, what we believe, that Apostles' Creed you said this morning, which we say all the time, I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all that is seen and unseen. This is Colossians 1, by the way. These things that we say that we believe are the result of leaders in the church and thinkers in the church and pastors in the church from its inception until now who are wrestling with the Bible. Now, why do I say that? I say that because the term the Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, one God, but three persons who share in the essence of that one Godness, yet remain in their own distinct personhood. You with me? <laughs> All right. We confess that to be true, and at least if we had Athanasius or some of these great figures of the early church who forged that doctrine out, Gregory of Nazianzus, Basil the Great, I mean, these are some of my heroes, they walked in here and we asked them, why do you believe that? There are some today who would tell you they believe that because they are indebted to Greek philosophy. That's why they believe that. 
And I would want to say there's a sense in which Greek philosophy was just the way in which people talked in that day. I don't want to deny that. But at the same time, their answer to us would be, I believe, and with good conscience and good reason. Why did you come to these conclusions, Athanasius? Why did you come to these conclusions, Gregory the Great, Gregory of Nazianzus? Why did you come? The answer would be because we have wrestled with the Bible. And it seems to us that the Bible in its total witness pressures on us, forces on us a recognition that God is distinct in a plurality within himself, and yet within those plural realities within the Godhead, they share a common divinity. And therefore we have this Trinitarian doctrine. So when you start hearing language like firstborn language, which I wasn't planning, I didn't know what Andrew was going to preach on this morning, but how important today that we see this story of the famous Akedah, or the handing over of Isaac on Mount Moriah. Mount Isaac was the what of Abraham? He was Abraham's firstborn. So this language of firstborn is language that pertains to Jesus, or the second person of the Trinity, the Logos, that pertains to his relate, eternal relationship to the Father. It's a naming of relation, not a naming of being. And this is where the early church heretics got it wrong. They didn't make a distinction between naming that had to do with relations within the Godhead and naming that had to do with the actual essence of Godhead itself. So when we hear this language, he is the firstborn of all creation, we can't truck in there our notion of firstbornness, right? In other words, I have a firstborn son, William. Some of you have firstborn children as well, and we can identify them. And there was a time when William was not, right? There was a time when your firstborn was not. But there was never a time when Jesus was not. And his firstbornness is an eternal generation. Eternally generate of the Father eternally the firstborn of the Father. Eternally, from time past unto time now, and even those categories don't quite work within the Godhead. But God was in inter-Trinitarian communication with himself, in the Son, by the Spirit, with the Father, held together in Augustine's famous image by love. And the good news of the Gospel is, we're brought into that by being in Jesus. That, that actually is a kind of blow-your-hair-back statement. By the work of Jesus, we are actually brought into the very triune life of God and are safely hid there. That's where we are. We participate. We, we exist in. We reside in the very being of God in Jesus as Jesus continues in that Trinitarian communication with the Father by the Spirit. It's... it's an enormous thing to say. I could only begin to scratch the surface of the, of the implications of it. But it's significant. He is the firstborn over all creation. He's the eternally generate Son of the Father. But there's another aspect of the, another firstborn. To use the language of firstborn has an enormous amount of connotative effect to it. It's not just the eternally generate one. It's also a recognition that Jesus is, and here's the word, and, you, and it might sound familiar to you even just saying it, prototokos, proto, right? Firstborn. He's preeminent as well. So to say that he is the firstborn over all creation is to make a claim that Jesus is supreme over all creation. He's supreme. He is the one who reigns supreme over it all. 
Now let me go back into this early church notion of the Trinity and, and see if you can hang with me for a second here as we press on. But why this is so important, li- listen to this claim. He's the firstborn over all creation. He is supreme over all creation. That tells us something about the way in which we view this world. This world is Jesus' world. You know that old hymn, This is my Father's world? Right? This is my Father's world. This is Jesus' world. I mentioned last week the great icon from the Orthodox Church with Jesus sitting on the throne, scepter in one hand, a little round ball in the other. He's, the, he's supreme over all the world. And why is that important? I mentioned this a little bit last week, but I want to press on today. The reason why this is important is because it begins to press on us, like the early church, that the doctrine of the Trinity, our view on Jesus and who Jesus is, is not a compartment in our lives, but is actually the very means by which we come to terms with the entirety of reality. I'm going to say that again. Our understanding of Jesus and Jesus' firstborn status over all creation is not one silo in our lives, but it is the very means by which we come to terms with the whole of reality, with all of it, that Jesus reigns supreme over it all. Um, I, I think I mentioned some of this last week, and if I did, forgive me for repeating, but it bears mentioning again. There was a... Did I mention Abraham Kuyper last week? That name? I'm forgetting someone. I don't think it... Okay, good. Good news. Um, my, my father listens to these things. He's quality control. He reminds me... <laughs> <laughs> he, he reminds me every... He's like, Monday morning, I'll let you know how it went. I'm like, okay. He's, he's, he's listening right now. Um, Abraham Kuyper was a Dutch theologian in the early part of the 20th century who actually became prime minister over the Netherlands. So here's a, I mean, a fascinating figure. And he uh, gave a series of lectures at Princeton Seminary, the early part of the 20th century, that are called the Stone Lectures. Those, those lectures are offered to this day. And his lectures were published. Now, if this bothers you, don't, don't, don't turn this off because of the term. But the name of the lectures and their popular form are called the Lectures on, on Calvinism. And these lectures are still in print, so it tells you something about the importance of these lectures from Abraham Kuyper. That's K-U-Y-P-E-R, is that name, Abraham Kuyper. And he gave a lecture on Calvinism. Let me, I mean, I don't know what your view is on Calvinism, right? I mean, all these isms kind of can make us break out in hives. But for some of you, to hear the term Calvinism is to immediately think about something about election and predestination, and maybe a flower that comes out in spring, right? <laughs> Tulip, right? Total depravity, unconditional election, limited atonement, irrecon- uh, irreconcilable grace, irresistible grace. <laughs> I'm, I'm B-gamed this morning, sorry. And then, um, and then the perseverance of the saints, uh, which is, by the way, a flower that Calvin would not have known anything about. Right? That's a later sort of development. Even though, anyway, I don't want to get on that But that's what we think of Calvinism. These lectures on Calvinism from Kuyper never even talk about any of that. Right. As a matter of fact, B.B. Warfield, who was a Calvinist theologian at Princeton Seminary at the early part of the 20th century, when asked, what is Calvinism, if we use those terms, his answer was, Calvinism is an insistence on the majesty and the supremacy of God in all things. 
In other words, we have a kind of myopic view of what Calvinism is. My understanding of Calvinism is a very broad stream. Our own Thomas Kramer is right smack dab in the middle of that, right? And so the Anglican tradition has its own sort of presence, I think, within this broader stream, although not all would, would want to be in that stream, and fair enough. So when Kuiper gives these lectures on Calvinism, he's not interested in defending predestination or election or limited atonement, the kind of bugger bears that we all kind of get nervous about. What he's interested in showing is that Jesus is Lord over all areas of life. So he has a section in there on, on Jesus or Calvinism and politics, Calvinism and art, Calvinism and science, Calvinism and the list goes on and on. And I would just love for this morning, so we don't get hung up on terms, to just jettison the term Cal- Calvinism and just say Christianity, right? Christianity and politics, in science, in art, in whatever, in medicine, in whatever. Because the famous line that Kuiper gave in those lectures that has, I think, achieved bumper sticker status in some quarters of the church, and rightly so, is the claim that Jesus Christ looks over this whole creation and he says, there is not one square inch of it that's not mine. Not one square inch. All of it is mine. Why? Well, Colossians 1.15 is why. He is the firstborn. He is supreme. He is the ruler over all creation. It's all his. And he rules over it. And as Christians, by the work of the Spirit, we have been made alive to that reality. We don't actualize that reality by our faith. You realize that, right? By our faith, we don't make it happen. Faith is a gift to us that allows our eyes and our hearts and our ears to be open to the reality of what already is. Another Karl Barth story, since we've already had him sort of tossed around this morning. Someone asked Karl Barth on that same tour that Andrew was speaking about this morning, when did you get saved? Which is a great Alabama question, right? (laughs) When did you get saved? And, I, I mean, I... I mean, if someone asked me that question, I'd say like a hundred times between the age of five and nine. I got saved lots, right? <laughs> Karl Barth's answer, to, you, some of you know what I'm talking about. Karl Barth's answer to that was, well, I got saved, I believe, around A.D. 33. You know, right. <laughs> on, a, <laughs> on a cross outside, that's, that's when I got saved. If you want to know what that, which actually is a really good answer. Because we are awakened by faith to the reality of what God has already done for us and actualized for us in Jesus. We don't actualize it at that moment. But we're given the gift of faith to be able to see now, hey, and by the way, that's for you. When he prayed, Father, forgive them, they don't know what they're they're doing, he's praying for you. When he said it's finished, he, he said that claim, meaning that the totality of salvation is finished, he meant that for you. And now you're awakened to that to that reality. So Kuiper makes a strong point here, and I think it's born out of the theology of Colossians 1, 15 to 20. And that is Jesus is supreme. He is Lord over all things. He's Lord over it all. And this, by faith in our Christian lives, begins to push itself on us, I believe, as we even think as Christians about the relationship of clergy and laity. This is one of the great achievements of the Reformation. And again, I believe the theology of it comes right out of here from Colossians 1 and other places too. I mean, what do we tend to think about with ministers and ministry and vocation? 
Well, we pay our preachers to do that, right? We pay our ministers to do that. And we've got great ones here at Advent, praise be to the Lord. We pay them to do that stuff for us. Whereas that's not really the way in which it works in the New Testament, is it? What are the priests and the ministers there for? To actually help the saints to do the work of the ministry. In other words, we don't get to relegate that task off because they're the professional ones. So, And by the way, let me just be clear. I still believe in that category of ordination and the call to the teaching life of the church. I believe in that as an office and an important one. But not in any way, of a, in the sense of a dereliction of our own call to walk into the same reality. And, 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 and to press it even more, to lean very hard against this notion. The really special Christians, right? Boy, the reformers kicked this in the knee of medieval Christianity. The really special Christians, they're the ones that either go into the monastery or they go into the priesthood. Those are the special kind of elite Christians. They're the elite. And what do I do? Well, I'm a tent maker, or I'm a, I'm a you know, blacksmith, or I'm a, you know, I'm a, I'm a seamstress, that, and then I, I do that sort of menial stuff. What Colossians 1.15 presses on us is a reality that that distinction, distinction is opaque, if not false. It's false. Because as Christians, if you are a Christian, in whatever vocation God has called you into, that is a vocation that is done for the glory of the Lord. So, you're a doctor to the glory of the Lord. So, you're a lawyer, or you're a tradesman, or a tradesperson to the glory of the Lord. Or, you're a mom changing, as hard as it is to believe, you're a mom changing diapers to the glory of the Lord. Because it's a vocation. That's what your calling is. Because there's not one square inch of this world that Jesus doesn't look at and say, that's mine, even the dirty diaper bin. That's mine. I mean, you see how this cosmic view on Jesus' lordship and the reality that he is protokos over all things, how that begins to impinge on the way in which we view our own vocation and identities as Christians Monday to Saturday. I don't do Christian things just on Sunday. Matter of fact, kind of what's most important, I think, probably is Monday to Saturday. Because the church, by its very nature, is missional. We're missional. We come together, what we're doing right now, to worship, to lift our hearts up in thanksgiving and praise, to be fed the word of God, both in our hearing and in our ingestion in the sacrament. We encourage one another, and then we scatter out into the world to be missionaries for Jesus by doing our work, I believe, to the, to the glory of the Lord. Now, I, this has had a profound impact on me, frankly, when it comes to our understanding of vocation, and Christian identity and calling. I mean, it shapes the way in which I think about my kids, right? I've got a firstborn son. I mean, this stays in here. I've got a firstborn son who's probably, I mean, he's spiritually interested in things, but I, I will be stunned if William ends up in the ministry. I'll be stunned. My middle son, Jackson, I think he says he wants to be a theologian. I don't even know what that means, but that's what he says he wants to do, <laughs> right? Uh, and that, that'd be fine. And I have to think long and hard about the way in which I speak into their lives about that. Because I wouldn't want the one who's going on to be a theologian, if, I don't want, but whatever, right? Whatever he's talking about, to say, that's right, right? You're on Jesus' A team, okay? Right? And you, well, I don't know. We'll see what happens, right? <laughs> I just can't, you know, I can't, it's, this is not, because I believe that Jesus is Lord over, over it all. It's, it's, it's good news, actually. Um, 
All right, page two. <laughs> Let me read this next part here. Number two, Jesus is the means of the creation, his lordship over it all. He's Lord over all things. Let me say this. this I'm going to pass over a lot here. Um, in him, all things in heaven and on earth were created, visible and invisible. Thrones, dominions, powers, principalities. So what, what Paul is saying here is, Jesus is Lord over the material and the immaterial world. That's another good thing to say. I mean, we could just park here. But Jesus is Lord over all that you see. The, the visible um, the material world, the tides, the mountains, the trees, the seasons. Um, he's involved in all of that. He's Lord over all of that. But he's also Lord over the immaterial world, that, that aspect that we don't really see. Um, thrones and dominions and powers and principalities. The angelic world that apparently the Colossian believers were getting a little too interested in, a little too excited about getting into this special angelic world that might give them some goodies on the spiritual life that otherwise they might not have. And what I think Paul is trying to press on them is, you've got Jesus, which is more than enough. Whatever you think those angels are going to offer you, they're just created beings that Jesus is Lord over as well. I've given you Jesus. If I can sort of reuse that famous C.S. Lewis line, why go playing in mud puddles with angels when in Jesus you've been offered a holiday at the sea? Right? Why keep, why keep playing with you know, little mud pies? Well, it's great. Well, thank you for that. When you can go to Destin right, and hang out with Jesus. Why do that? I think that's what Paul is actually saying here. And I think this is important because it also tells us something about the spiritual world. Um, you know, Luther, and this impresses itself on me, Luther believed in the devil. <laughs> the devil. That's hokey pokey stuff, isn't it? Um, did any of you read the piece, was it on Friday, I guess, in the Wall Street Journal in the opinion section on Pope Francis? Was that on Friday? Let's talk about Pope Francis's, you know, kind of a reflection, inside Catholic reflection on Pope Francis. And there's two things that Pope Francis is, I mean, all, all the sort of um, social stuff is what's getting the buzz in the media. But if you listen closely to what he's really trying to articulate well, there are two big issues. Number one has to do with this, with the issues of poverty and justice. You've heard a lot of that, and some of that's controversial, but you've heard that. But the other thing is, is his belief in the devil. <laughs> I mean, the devil. He actually almost got into some papal tr trouble because he did his own exorcism, which really, as a pope, he doesn't have the authority to do. Exorcists have to do that. And here's the pope doing. You remember that scene? It got what, viral on YouTube. Um, he believes in the devil. Um, I don't always know how to talk about this because there's a sense in which I both want to affirm the reality of the devil and I also want to downplay um, his power at the same time. But I think the point here is that Jesus is Lord over all of that too. He's Lord of all the all that Frank Peretti stuff, which I I mean I don't know about you know these books right? Spiritual conflict and angels. I mean, we can get really all too interested in that, but I believe in spiritual warfare. I don't always know how to articulate it, but I believe it. I believe it's happening. I believe there are things that are going on behind the scenes that we don't know. And some of you have experienced these kinds of things. I believe the devil is a, or his, his minions are especially at work in my home on Sunday morning. <laughs> I don't know about your home. It's like, it's really bad right now. 
and we're going to church. It's like, why is it always so bad on Sunday morning? The devil, right? <laughs> That's why. And it's good to remember, I believe, that Jesus is he's Lord over all of that, too. Well, pressing on, he himself is before all things, and in him all things hold together. There's a move that's being made here in the book of Colossians that I think is similar in some sense to what we've sang in the Venita this morning. A move from God's lordship over creation and then the natural move from that into the reality that Jesus saves, that he redeems. Um, all things hold together in him. I mean, just let that sit on you. All things hold together in him. In other words, and I, I know nothing, I mean, some of you, this is in your world. I know, I mean, my knowledge of science is just painfully limited. But I subscribed to Scientific American for a year and then realized I don't read it, so I don't do it anymore. But I did it for a year, and I've read a few of these articles on quantum physics and quantum mechanics and string theory and the relationship of waves to particles and how all these things hold together on the most micro level of reality. And I'm thinking to myself, wow, that's incredible. And here Paul, by the way, and this is my view on science, you want to kind of get this, but my view on science is science only deals with evidence, like sort of natural evidence, but it can't give us a narrative of the world. It just can't do that. It doesn't, it doesn't, it's not within its reach. And here, Paul is giving us a view on the world as it relates to the particularity of our scientific engagement. And that is, in him, all things hold together. On the atomic level, I guess we'd have to say, without the sustaining, continual, creative work of Jesus Christ. And let me just put some more flesh on that. That man who walked around on this earth for 30-some-odd years, who came through a woman's birth canal, and he lived a life, and he made some tables and some chairs probably. Who knows, maybe a boat or two. He's a carpenter. And then he went into a public ministry and was baptized and began to teach incredibly and do miracles, identifying himself as Yahweh in the flesh. And then he died, and then he rose again, and now he's with the flesh. That guy, Jesus of Nazareth, fully God, fully man right now. And it's in his power, in his continual act of creation, that on the atomic level of reality, things hold together and they don't fall apart and we don't implode into non-existence. Isn't that something? I mean, I just have to hold on to that. So that when I look at a sunrise or the tides, which we might want to say things by natural law, which I'm kind of against that, but if you want to say something about natural law, right? Well, we, of course we know the sun is going to come up tomorrow or better. The earth is going to continue to spin and move around it. But the way in which I think Paul's getting at this is, is you know, that, that wouldn't happen if it weren't for the active and operative work of Jesus in the reality of the world around us. Again, I mentioned this last week, and I think it presses on us again. Whatever our view of Jesus is, Paul is saying here in Colossians 1, 15 to 20, it's really, just, it's not, it's got to get bigger. It's got to get bigger. Um, see how he moves here from he holds all things together into the next verse. Oh, look at the time. He is the head of the body of the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn of the dead. I'm going to stop here. He is the head of the body, the church. Augustine, St. Augustine, had a view on the church, his doctrine of the church. Ecclesiology is the fancy terms. But his doctrine of the church was what's often referred to as totus Christus, the total Christ. Jesus, the one who is the creator, the sustainer of all reality. 
the one who is supreme, the firstborn, the preeminent one over all things, the one who does not look at one square inch of this created world and say, that part is not mine. That same one is the head of our church. There's That imagery is so important to Paul. The organic relationship of the head to the body. There's an organic fit between the total Christ so that in some way that I can't completely understand, but our physical reality of the church is organically related to Jesus himself. I mean, Paul, I don't know if we're going to get to this or not, but Paul says at the end of this chapter, I continue to bear in my own body the sufferings of Jesus. That verse sometimes I wish wasn't in the Bible, right? Because I don't always know what to do with that, but what I think is pressed on us is Paul recognizes in some way there's an organic relationship between his own apostolic ministry and Jesus himself. I mean, do you remember Paul on the road to Damascus? He gets knocked off his horse and blinded. And what did Jesus say to him? Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? I mean, the, the theological significance of what Jesus is saying there is overwhelming. Why? Because what Jesus is making a claim about there is that his own resurrected and ascended body, himself, fully God, fully man now, is organically and dynamically related to the life of the church here on earth. So that Paul on the way to Damascus, about to persecute the church in Damascus, or Paul just coming from the martyrdom of Stephen, Jesus can say, Paul, you doing that to them is doing that to me. Do you remember Jesus and Paul saying that? I've never persecuted you. You don't even know who you are. Well, you're persecuting my church, and therefore you're persecuting me. He's the head of the body. He's the church. And this is, and I'll stop with this. This is what I think is, is forced on us, given these statements from Paul. What's forced on us is, I believe, a view of Jesus as Lord, transcendent, He's huge and he's big. He's supreme over it all. And he's imminent. He is present and active dynamically in the life of his church. Have you ever read Hebrews 2? In Hebrews 2, the, the, the apostle there, whoever that was, quotes the Psalms and says, and relates it to Jesus, that Jesus actually comes into the congregation on Sunday mornings, I'll use our term, and when we sing songs to the Father, when we sing hymns, Jesus is in our midst singing with us. That's his dynamic relationship to the church. When we're praying, our praying is wrapped up in his praying. When our, we're singing, he's right there in the pew singing along with us. He's present with us. He's our brother. He's our ascended brother and he is our, our Lord. What I believe Paul presses on us here is a recognition that your view of Jesus cannot be big enough and also it cannot be close enough. He's close. He's present. And he's especially present in what goes on in the life of, of his church. Lord, seal these things into our hearts. We, we know, Lord, I'm, I, I know this section out of Paul may be the sum of his theology in five verses. It's huge, Lord. Give us just some sense of what you want us to see about yourself and how it relates to us as we live lives in the light of your lordship over all things. In Jesus' name, amen. amen.